Welcome to Life Without Secrets. Do you often find yourself comparing your life to your friends on social media? You see the glamour, the success, the perfect family, the perfect kids, the awesome vacations. But what's really behind the highlight reel? In Life Without Secrets, we are going to dive deep and reveal the secrets, struggles, and strategies people have used in real life to get to who they are now and who they are becoming. Because the truth is, nobody is perfect. And you are never alone in what you're going through. So don't forget to subscribe to the show because it's time to connect on a deeper level and grow together. I have to tell you, I'm super excited about today's episode. If you've been listening to my podcast for a minute, you've probably heard me talk about the Adventure Challenge book for couples. When Mike and I chose to reinvent our relationship after we were on the brinks of goodbye, this book full of fun date ideas made such a difference. Fast forward to today, we have Bryant Ellis with us on the show, a self-made entrepreneur, Forbes 30 Under 30 honoree, and the founder of The Adventure Challenge. Join us as Bryant shares profound insights from his book, Hello, My Name is Failure, where he personifies failure as a mentor, guide, and friend. Today, we're going to explore the transformative power of embracing setbacks, failures, rewriting your narrative, and letting failure light your way to success. Get ready for a journey through the pages of failure and growth. Bryant, welcome to Life Without Secrets. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm so excited to learn from you today and learn about you today. I just first also want to take the opportunity to give you a personal thank you. The Adventure Challenge actually really helped save my marriage. Uh, My husband and I both came to a point a few years ago where we were going to walk away. Um, We chose to first do therapy. And like even in the beginning of therapy, I was like, I'm not sure whether I'm going to stay or not, but I'm willing to step onto this journey. And about a month into our kind of therapy sessions, we decided we were going to go on a date every week. But the date had to be very intentional. It had to be something new that we had never done before together or that we hadn't done in a really long time together so we could have fun again. And, you know, it sounds great. But then after a few weeks goes by, you're like, (laughs) we have to come up with some other idea, right? And that's where we started Googling and we found the Adventure Challenge for couples. And I have to tell you that therapy, inner work, obviously, but, and the adventure challenge actually helped save our marriage. So from, from my husband and I, I just wanted to give you a personal thank you and just say, I'm so excited to have you here on the show. Yeah. Well, the whole, uh, the whole team of adventure challenge will be excited to hear that. I think those are our favorite types of reviews or feedback. And because that's what we created it for was to help spark reconnection, novelty, intimacy, and relationships. So it's really cool. And, and, and as, uh, as much as I love hearing your story, it's crazy how many stories we've heard that are very similar to that. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, we're sure. kind of on the brink and this. I mean, sometimes it sparks the excitement back to where then they go to therapy after doing some of the book or like what you said, went to therapy. Then you're like, let's start being intentional. And then you found the book. And so that's really encouraging to hear. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad so it, cool. it helped you guys. Well, and you know, I run into so many people that like haven't even crossed paths with the Adventure Challenge. So just in case people don't know what the Adventure Challenge is, can you give like a little bit of a brief overview of the company and what you guys do? Yeah. So I guess the elevator pitch would be (laughs) it's a scratch off dating book, but you don't know what any of the dates are because they're all covered with a lottery ticket scratcher material. 
And so you pick a box, scratch it off. It tells you what to do for the date. The books usually, you can buy the book with a Polaroid camera. So after the date, you take a picture and the book becomes like a scrapbook of all the dates you went on as well. And so it's called the adventure challenge because we have, we have the dating book. We have a book to do by yourself, one to do with friends, one to do with family, even one for kids. And we have one for the bedroom as well, um, a more intimate, spicy one. And so uh, that's essentially what the, uh, the products that we sell are. But the, the company mantra is inspire human connection. And so that's what the company is focused about helping people create. Yeah, I feel like we're so aligned, Bryant. Like I am all about that too. And if it's okay with you, I really want to kind of dive deep into your journey. I think many people see big companies or people that have some significant success in their life and think, oh, that person has it all together. You know, like those, that person knows it all. Like, you know, that's just who they are. You've been Forbes 30 under 30. You've created this successful company. And then you wrote this book. Mm -hmm. Hello, my name is Failure. And I thought, wow, this person has a lot of depth to them. And I am so curious. So if you don't mind going deep with us, I want to know like behind the scenes of the highlight reels of life. <laughs> Tell us about your personal journey into entrepreneurship. What has life really been like and what led you to embrace this concept of failure that you write in your book? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to create anything that I don't believe would help like former Bryant or current Bryant, right? And so even with creating the book, Hello, My Name is Failure, it's like there's not a lot of books. There's a lot of influencers telling you to go fail, right? Failure is good. Fail fast, fail often, fail forward. But what I, what I see a lot of people doing is they're just kind of going out and excuse the overuse of this word, but they're kind of just traumatizing themselves by taking risks that they're not prepared to, you know, file into the educational part of their brain versus the traumatic part. And me as an entrepreneur, it was like there were so many failures that I experienced on even the journey of creating the company that's now my big company. Uh, there was a lot of failed companies that happened. And I've always been very vocal about that on my social media or my podcast, because I'm like, I don't want to portray this image of I'm so great. I'm so smart and intelligent and business savvy and all these things. It's like, I really didn't know what I was doing when this company even took off. Like I, I had certain skills, like I'm really good with marketing. I'm good with sales, uh, videographer, editor. And so I've always been savvy with creating ads and stuff like that. But I mean, you go from, you know, having two employees to 50 to hundred and people are like, well, you're supposed to be a leader because you are this leader. It's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And it was, I mean, messy, messy years of mess and falling and getting back up, owning messes, moving forward. And, and so it, it's something I'm passionate about because I'm like, I don't feel like you can grow unless you learn to embrace failure. And so one of the things I see is the people who are highly successful and the people who are not, one of the main differences is the relationship with failure and how you view the subject of failure. The successful or the unsuccessful people, I'll say, they show up to the plate of life. Um, life throws them a curveball. They swing and they miss. And they're like, well, that's evidence that I'm never going to get what I want. Versus successful people swing and miss. And they say, hmm, what could I do better next time in order to have a better chance at hitting the ball? Is it my posture? Is it the way I'm holding the bat? Is it my repetitions? Is it, do I need to practice more? And when you can view failure that way as not evidence that you're never going to get what you want, it's evidence that there's an educational gap from where you are and where you want to be. 
And so that's kind of a lot of the inspiration behind writing it. A lot of my story has a lot of up and downs. My first entrepreneurial endeavor, well, as a kid, we did a lot of door-to-door sales. My parents made like uh, cross necklaces. And so we'd go door to door and we sold those. And so I guess that's where a lot of my salesmanship came from is from, you know, eight years old going door to door. But my first company was a lawn mowing, like maintenance company. And it it was wild. And, you know, I was maybe making 800, 900 bucks a month. And at 16, that was fantastic. Had my first employee doing that, you know, hired a buddy. I charged $30, you know, for, for a lawn to be cut. I paid my employee $20. So I made $10. And that felt wrong at 16 to like make money off of somebody else's work. But that, you know, but it was like I put the work into finding the client, buying the gear, taking all of the risk of, of creating the company. And then I was able to employ someone. And so, you know, that's how that, that was my first business that I started. And then it kind of just took off from there, from different ventures. And but I wasn't expecting the adventure challenge to turn into what it turned into. I was honestly just trying to make two to three thousand dollars of passive income so I could go pursue acting in LA. Oh and my gosh, how interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of that was kind of the hope behind making it. And then it took off and and uh, here I am. So <laughs> So I have to ask because like, you know, you okay, so I'm listening and I'm like, okay, you did the lawnmower. You're very entrepreneurially mindset from a young age, right? It probably stemmed from, you know, parents sounds like growing up and um uh, then there's like the adventure challenge and the human connection piece, right? What was it that helped create the adventure challenge? Like where in where did that idea come from? What was going on in your life? Was there something missing in your life that you felt like you needed more of and you found a solution in your own life? Or like what? where did that come from? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a funny answer because I didn't set off to build this company with this idea, right? I got the idea because it was, like you said, a, a, a solution to a problem I had. So I have ADHD. You'll probably notice that during this podcast, my brain goes into a million different directions in bunny trails. So does my husband. So I'm I'm good at this. Oh, good. So you know you know how to deal with people like us. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> my girlfriend's still learning how to. Deal oh, okay. With you can ADHD. send her to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I I hate game nights. I hate going to people's house and playing Settlers of Catan or random board games or card games. Like I just can't sit still and I'm always wanting to do something new or different. But that's how a lot of young people, I mean, older people connect. But it's it, it was a point of contact where I was like, man, if somebody could make a game, kind of like Jumanji, where oh every gosh. time yes. every time you play it, we you just don't watched that this week, it. this oh, past weekend. The old one or the new one? Oh gosh, we watched the, my favorite one. I have to be, be honest, is the f- number one with Kevin Hart and The Rock because it's oh, okay. it's okay. so funny. I love the old one too, yeah, yeah, but yeah. like because I love Robin Williams, obviously. But yeah. like, uh, it's so funny. Like I just love those two people together and anything. I'm like, please mm-hmm. give me more of that because I'll laugh for days. Oh yeah, it's I love the new one. I think the reason I like the old one is because it's a little creepier. You know, it's kind of like it is creepier. And it's kind of like, (laughs) but but I wanted to make I was like, man, if there could be a game where every time you play it, you do something different and you don't know what you're getting into until you commit to playing. Kind of like Jumanji, right? And I was like, man, I'd play that game. Like if and I was like, maybe I make a a box, you push a button and it prints out a card and it tells you what the game is you have to do. And so that's where the idea originated from. It was maybe 10 years ago I had that idea. And it just sat in the back of my brain. I didn't do anything with it. And then fast forward five years later, I was uh, 
I was talking to a friend and I was like, you know, if you made, if you made a book where you like, you put all of the, uh, these game ideas and adventure ideas in a book, but you couldn't see what it was until you covered it with a lottery ticket scratcher. And then you scratch it off and it tells you what to go do. Like that would be so fun. And she was like, you shouldn't make you that You just gave, book. yeah. <laughs> You're like, that's an amazing idea. And I was like, you think so? You think people would buy that? And she's like, I think they would. And so that kind of launched me into my journey of making it. I started making prototypes, which literally looked like me going to Hobby Lobby, buying a scrapbook, buying scratcher material off of Amazon, cutting, gluing it, pasting it, you know, creating a really janky book. I have a the uh, prototype around here somewhere, but it, it, it looks it looks awful. It's just a janky little prototype that I used to pitch to other people to advance the prototype pr production until we had an official product. And so that's kind of where the idea origin from. Uh, I would say it's funny because the market kind of tells you what they're interested in buying. I was never in the market to make a dating book at all. Like I was single, I was a bachelor. I just wanted to make a fun game that might mean my friends could play. So I made the original adventure challenge book. It was just adventures to go on with your friends. But in the promo video, I put, it was on Kickstarter. I said, also, I'm going to make one for couples so they can go on fun dates. And it was like a five second clip, just kind of threw it out there. Everyone on the Kickstarter bought the couples book. Nobody wanted the friends book. Oh my God. And I was interesting. like, well, this sucks. Like, I don't want to make a bunch of date books. Like I want to make an adventure book that they connect with your friends. And, and I realized there's a way bigger pain point in relationships with connecting and people have it for friend groups, but I mean, relationship, there's so, it's so intimate. It's one of those things that everybody's working and developing on. And it's funny because in my relationships in my life, especially in dating, I've always been a very proactive date planner. And so if I'm going to go on a date with somebody, I'm planning something. I'm like, I don't, I want them to at least say I've never been on a date like that before. And so I'd always plan these really intricate, elaborate dates. And, and I always had so much fun and, and I'm hoping they had fun on them too, but it, it was always so fun to do that. And I was like, oh yeah, I could channel that into a book and give other people date ideas. And so it, it was just funny how it took off, you know, because it was like, it wasn't, wasn't a dating expert, still not, but you know, wasn't a matchmaking expert or anything, but it came from this idea and then it turned into something much bigger and then grew. And now we have all types of people on the team who are, you know, relationship experts, coaches, mentors, sex psychologists and stuff that help us create these. So uh, that's kind of how it started. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I was just so curious because I'm like, I find it so interesting. And usually, you know, things start from a point in our lives, right? Like the good things where things, you know, we're we have something that's missing, right? And whether it's like a setback or a failure, like we're going to talk about um, in our lives that propel us into this new direction or into creating something that changes our whole lives, right? And so I always find it interesting to see like where where did where you are now come from, you know, with your business or who you are as a person. In your book, Hello, My Name is Failure, I find it interesting the way that you wrote it um, in a form of letters from failure as a person, right? So can you kind of elaborate on how you, like, what brought you to do that into letters um, and why did you write it that way? Yeah, well, one, anything that I create, I want it to be disruptive and original and unique. 
And so I didn't want to write a self-help book called, you know, how Bryant navigates failure or, you know, just lessons. I wanted to create something that everybody can take each chapter and apply it to their own life and, 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 and learn how to grow from it. And also there's so many different topics and messages about failure. I was like, I feel like the best way people will receive this is if failure is talking directly to them and, and not just encouraging them to embrace failure, but showing them why failure is a necessity for success. And so, you know, like I said, a lot of people hear about failure and, you know, maybe it puts a nasty feeling in their stomach and it feels like they're going to have to go and do an open mic in front of a hundred people and go embarrass themselves. And it's like learning to embrace failure is kind of like going to the gym, right? Like, it's kind of like if you go to the gym your first time, throw six plates on each bar and try to lift it, you're going to break your arms. You know, you're going to break your body and it's going to traumatize you. You're probably never going to go back to the gym again because you're going to have a horrible experience and, and, and your brain's going to tell you not to. It's going to associate the gym with a horrible memory. Like we don't do this anymore because this is dangerous for us. And in the same way, when we go take massive risks without the preparation or understanding why we're taking the risk or even building the muscle of what it looks like to take risks, a lot of times we experience public shame, embarrassment, or this event, if I can use the word traumatic experience, where your brain's like, hey, don't do this anymore. Because if you do this, people are going to reject you. You're going to be removed from love. You're not going to be accepted, yada, yada, yada. And there's all of this feedback that happens into your brain that pulls you away from taking risks. We don't want that. That's why I don't encourage people, just go take a bunch of risks and see what happens. Just like, so using the gym analogy, when you're approaching a risk, you should first ask yourself, why am I taking this risk? Like, what's the result I'm trying to get? And am I mentally and emotionally prepared to take this risk? Like, what is the worst case scenario if I fail? Am I able to handle that? I can? Great. So for people who want to do public speaking, right? Don't go apply to speak at a TEDx event or, you know, in front of a mega church of a thousand people or, you know, or whatever. Get five of your friends and say, hey, I'm learning how to public speak. Can I give you a 10 minute speech and you guys tell me what I did good and what I did bad? And, and then you set that up. And then maybe again, you do it for 10 people. And then maybe you find a school that will let you talk in front of a classroom of 30 students or something. But you, you, you start to grow that because then what you learn is when you do slip up or maybe you're speaking and you don't articulate exactly what you want or you say something stupid or you stumble on your words, you realize, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. Everyone just kind of laughed. To when you get the TEDx moment, you don't have all this fear, pressure, and anxiety of like, what if I mess up? You're like, I've already messed up lots. And I'm still accepted and people still like me and I'm still doing a good job. And I've learned what not to talk about, how to talk about this. And I feel really confident go, to go take this risk. You'll still probably be nervous, but it's not going to be this overwhelming sensation of fear where that cripples you to where you're actually going to go and, and probably bomb. You know what I'm saying? And so the whole book is failure teaching the audience how to embrace him or her and why it's so important in your life. So what I hear you saying is that we try, should try our best to fail in smaller scales so that we can learn from these moments and the, the moments where we should grow in or the, the lessons and grow in those areas before we put it on a bigger scale and set ourselves up to then go try to hide from the world and in our shape. Totally. Yeah. And there, there's a, there's a chapter in the book called practice where it's like practice is where you go and develop your relationship with failure and, and practice is where the high stakes of failure are removed. 
You know, it'd be absurd for, you know, somebody to, you know, a, a basketball team to never practice together before going on the court and playing against another team. You know, like you practice to learn where your shortcomings are, where your educational gaps are. So when you're performing, you don't make as many mistakes. You're still going to make mistakes. That's inevitable. But as much as you can shorten that window, the more success you're going to have when you take these risks. And people will notice a lot of us, we might take one or two risks a year. You know, maybe, you know, if you're dating, maybe you ask out two people. Um, and you're like, yeah, well, I've failed all of my risks or half the time I take a risk, I fail. It's like, try taking 10 or 20. Like, I bet you'll notice you probably only fail two or three times because I don't feel like we, we fail more in our head than we do in real life. And so we create a narrative of, oh, I'm going to fail. This is what's going to happen. And when we don't take small risks and start building that repetition, we don't actually realize, no, we're, we don't fail as much as we think we do. It's all in our head. Um, and, and so that's why it's such a big deal to, to, to start off with small practice risks, because it's like you start to develop this relationship with risk and with failure, where it's like, oh, he actually doesn't visit as much as I'm assuming he's going to. Yeah. Something I really appreciate in people is vulnerability. And I think that's like the way we can help ourselves and help others a lot. And I, I really liked your chapter on shame. And I want to talk about shame and vulnerability for a minute, because on, on, our podcast, we want our listeners to really get rid of that shame and give yourselves the compassion to go after those dreams. And in your book, Failure, spoken as if it was a person, talks about how shame is its enemy. And I think I could be wrong, but I think a lot of people will see shame as the result of their failures. So can we kind of dive into the relationship between shame and failure? Yeah. So I'm going to say something and I don't want to uh, plagiarize this because this, this part is Brene Brown, right? You know, shame says I am something bad. And what is it? Correction says I did something bad or embarrassment says I did something bad. But basically when you make a mistake, that thought that says this is evidence you're bad, that's shame. And that that's not good, right? That's not educating us to learn how to take better risks in the future for failure. A lot of times we experience shame when we fail because our identity is attached to the outcome of what we think we're supposed to get versus being open to this educational experience, right? Like if you had this assumption, it, this for Gen Z crew, you know, you, you post something on Instagram, it gets 10 likes and then you delete it instantly because you, your identity, because you're embarrassed by the result of what you think you should have gotten. You're entitled to this idea of, oh, this should have gotten 100 likes. And because it got 10, people think I'm only worth 10 likes, that I'm not interesting, that I'm not entertaining. I better remove this so people don't attach this to me. That's, that's, a, that's an evident sign that you're attaching your identity to the results of whatever you do. The more you can detach from that and say, this is not a representation of who I am. This is me. This is a representation of me trying me attempting to show up in the world. And so when you go up on into, you know, public speak and open mic, stand up comedy, and you just, you make a mistake and you're like, oh, well, that's evidence that I was trying. What can I do next time to, to do better versus, wow, this is evidence that I'm not funny. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a good, you know, social media influencer. Uh, that's when I think a lot of shame comes in and actually deters us from taking risks and embracing failure. I can see that. And I want to hear some like practical tips for listeners. Like how do we start shifting our mindset? So like, well, let's go back actually. 
So let's say somebody experiences a failure that they think is like a big deal, right? And they now are like, I am a failure, okay? Like we've reached this point in our lives where like, you know, we cannot get out of bed in the morning. Like we are feeling low. We have no energy to find a new job. We have no um, we don't even want to try to find a relationship anymore because we've had zero success. Like I'm failing at this. When we're in those stages, how do we cope? How do we cope with failure? Yeah, that's a great question. The answer is really simple and it's go- it might come across really cheesy. And I don't want to dumb it down to just positive self-talk because like, what does that look like? You say, yeah, you're good. You're, you're smart. You're intelligent. I am this. I am that. It is psychologically proven that the way we talk to ourselves influences the way we view ourselves. If, if you were to see a one and a half year old, two year old learning how to walk and fall down, you're not going to point and laugh and be like, stupid kid, like (laughs) trying to walk. Like, no, that's ridiculous. Or, you know, if you see your friend go up and perform and they epically fail, you're not going to be like, what an idiot. Like, you know, and if you do, you should probably, you know, get some therapy. But most of the time, get you, some we're new not, friends. Yeah, get some new <laughs> friends. We're not looking at other people's failures as these big bad experiences. We have a lot more empathy and compassion. And so, a lot of times, and, and they'll tell you this a lot in therapy too. It's talking to yourself the way you would talk to a seven or eight year old child. So a lot of so I'll give an example. There was one time I went to Santa Cruz. I love surfing, big surfer, and. Back when I was learning how to surf, I went to Santa Cruz and I, it was a bigger day. It was kind of bigger than I should have been surfing in. I went out, I tried to drop it on a wave. I cut a surfer off. It was a really dangerous situation because I had a massive board and these were like waves that were taller than me. And he dodged me and I fell. My board went flying, which is really dangerous because a board that heavy flying in that big of waves, it could, it could kill someone. And so, you know, I just was unaware. I didn't really know better. And my, you know, all of these surfers paddled up to me and I kid you not 20 or 30 surfers and they're screaming at me and yelling at me and telling me how stupid I am. One guy cocked his fist back and was going to punch me. And I'm just a, this is maybe, you know, four years ago. So I'm at this point, I'm 26 year old, 26 year old man sitting in the middle of the ocean. All of these people screaming at me, telling me how stupid I am, cussing me out. And I was shaking in shame, embarrassment, just like, oh my God, I'm so stupid. How could I have done this? Oh my God. And, and, and I start paddling back to shore. One surfer's chasing after me. It was, it was, it was emotionally traumatizing. Never in my adult life have I had that many adults screaming, cussing me out, threatening to injure me. And so I get to shore and I'm doing everything in my power not to cry. I get my surfboard, I throw it in the back of my truck. And I end up meeting with one of my friends who's a therapist. And I was like, I am, I, I am never going back on the water. That was so stupid. How could I have done that? Like I could have killed that guy and all these. And she was like, well, how would you react if your friend went out there and made the same mistake? Like, how would you talk to him? And she led me through this experience where I was looking at him and I said, hey, what you learned from this experience is you probably don't go out surfing when it's that big, when you're this new. But honestly, you didn't know better and you went out there and you were trying your best and those adults shouldn't have been treating you that way. I, in, a, in a perfect world that once someone would have pulled you aside and been like, hey, you should probably go to shore. This is too big for you. This is not a good idea. This is dangerous. Um, and I, and I, this video is actually on YouTube. I'm, this, this session is on YouTube with this therapist. And I like stand up and I'm talking to myself like, hey, Bryant, you did your best. You're not 
um, unworthy of love. You're not, you know, you're not rejectable just because of this thing that happened. And I'm literally talking to myself in that situation as I would a friend. And as cheesy as that sounds, it felt like it just lifted from me. And it was like, and then at nighttime, sometimes the memory will come back as it does. Shame tries to come back, especially when you're trying to go to bed at night. Um, I wrote that in the book too. Um, you have to redo it. Hey, Bryant, that was a, a dumb decision, but you didn't know better. And you're, you're going to make so much better choices in the future. And I'm so proud of you for going out there and taking a risk. I'm so proud that you tried. So that's, that's probably one of the biggest things I would say for somebody stuck in like a shame spiral from taking a risk and failing. The second thing would be to call a friend, tell them what happened and say, can you give me your feedback and tell me what you think about this? And get a friend who loves you and can tell you how much they love you and they affirm you and they can laugh at it with you and be like, oh my God, that's a crazy story. And it's really, it's, it's reconnecting to love that really helps us let go of the shame because a lot of times shame is like, you're not worthy of love. So you go connect with people that love you and you reattach to that emotion and that feeling. That has saved my ass dozens of times in shame spirals that, you know, a younger Bryant didn't know how to get out of and I would just spiral and it would damage my self-confidence. And, and, you know, um, that same day I actually went back out and surfed again and I had a great time. And, um, I've actually, I've seen people do that in the water and I'll intentionally paddle up to them and treat them the way that I wish I would have been treated back four years ago when I was learning. And so does that, does that help? Is, did that make sense? so helpful. And I, I think it's really powerful. And I want to talk about like where this comes from because you you have a chapter in in your book about it and how you know when we're little and we fall off our bikes and you know we you know nobody's like oh you stupid why'd you fall off your bike you know like same thing like you were new at surfing it was just like the little kid riding the bike right totally yeah and then you know you talk about how we like we enter grade school and then we're compared to like these grades and where we're supposed to be. And not everybody, you know, is going to be great in that environment, right? Like not everybody is meant to get straight A's in school. Like that's just not how their brain functions, right? But instead of embracing that, you talk a lot about like how we need to change that, right? Because and and as a parent, um, I have a 17-year-old. And he is that kid. He's not, he is creative. Um, he's talented. Um, but he doesn't do that great in school, to be honest, you know? And I used to, I'll, I'll be honest, I used to be the parent that was like, oh my gosh, like we have to get this done, you know? And reading your, I, I have since, you know, it took me a long time to get there, but I have changed the way I do that. But I want to talk, I want to have this conversation with you because I have, think you make, a lot of good points in your book about this and about um, the way we see it in school and how that translates into our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. School's tricky, right? Like I didn't finish high school. I I have maybe the equivalent. I actually have the equivalent of a high school graduate, but I didn't finish. I left at around ninth grade. It's wild because I was never good in an academic setting or traditional testing. But with creativity, problem solving, um, even communication and, and grammar, I've thrived. But, you know, tr- algebra, geometry, chemistry, advanced biology, like I, I think a lot of it's useless, but that's my own opinion. I think it's great for problem solving, 
but a lot of the stuff they teach in school isn't relevant to what you're going to face as an adult. So in maybe ninth grade, I was like, I'm actually done with high school. I'm going to go pursue my other dreams. And so, but it's interesting. I had really incredible parents when it came to education because I never felt less than or stupid or, you know, unqualified because of my grades. They were able to highlight and point out the areas that I did shine and my, in my creativity and my entrepreneur ways and things of that nature. And so I think a lot of that does, you know, a lot of that does fall on, you know, how are parents speaking to their kids when they aren't fitting into the box that society wants them to fit into. And this goes into a lot of different ways, not just education, obviously. But it's funny because, yeah, you know, comparison is another chapter in the book, and that's an enemy of failure. Because comparison is the thing that leads us to our fear of failure. Because what are we actually afraid of in failing? It's not hitting this mark that somebody else has set a standard for. And so, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's like, if we're comparing ourselves to ourselves, we haven't set a standard that we could really fail at because we've already done that before. We're trying to exceed our standard and that should be, I might fail, but we're afraid of failing because we're like, well, Joey hit the mark, Miranda hit the mark, Megan hit the mark. If I don't hit the mark, I'm not good enough. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of times in early childhood development, it can be some of the parents who early on, like, why can't you be like Matthew? He's so good at studying. Why can't you be like Miranda? She's so good at getting a job. Why can't? And there's kind of this like pairing up, which parents use to motivate. But I, I think it has more of a detrimental impact on our brain because then it's starting to go, oh, well, I'm always looking who I should be comparing myself to then in order to survive. So, and I did a podcast on this recently, but I don't even think it's necessarily, now there's a fine line between this, so this might be controversial. Perspective is good, right? So, you know, you're eating your food and you don't want to eat your food as a kid. And your mom's like, there are starving kids in Africa. But it's funny because it's like from an early age, that's even a comparison of like, we are more blessed because we have this, you should be grateful. So it's like, you should be grateful because we are better than X, Y, Z. Once again, this is a very, there's a very thin line between this and perspective. I understand that perspective for gratitude is a good thing, but a lot of times we'll, you know, someone might be like, oh, I feel good about where my Instagram following is because I have more followers than my friends. And if that's what's stoking your ego, your brain's also going to be looking for who's better than you. And then you're never going to be enough because you're going to always be looking at who's better than you and comparing yourself as well. So comparison goes both ways. If you get sucked into the trap of comparing yourself to the people who are less fortunate than you, you're also going to be comparing yourself to the people who are more fortunate than you. And it's going to create this con constant spiral of ego and shame to where you're feeling prideful because you're better than them. And then you're feeling shameful because you're worse than them. So we're moving comparison off the board on either side of the spectrum is so important and learning how to self-evaluate and say, where am I now? Where would I like to be? Why would I like to be there? And then setting a goal to obtain that. And then you're tracking your progress by baby steps versus these large giant steps that you think you're supposed to be because your neighbor's there. Mm -hmm. So if you had to tell somebody one thing, like that person that maybe doesn't feel like they fit in the box, what would you want them to know? Well, I mean, I think it's a self-discovery of why you're unique, you know? And, and I think that's a journey a lot of us have to go on. I coach a lot of people who, I don't know what my passion is. I don't know what I'm passionate about or what I need to be pursuing. This is a great opportunity to go explore that. 
especially in your teens, your 20s, 30s. I mean, like this is prime time to go and try mixed martial arts, public speaking, baking, you know, bricklaying, whatever, video editing. This is the time, and this is why I love Gary Vee because he's a big encourager on the subject of trying a bunch of things, just totally exploring, taking all the risk. It's like, if you feel like you don't fit in the box, create your own box. Like figure out like what your box is and where you thrive and come alive in. And a lot of the times, like we don't fit the box and we feel like we're unacceptable, not accepted and all these things, but it's like, we're just around the wrong people. Sometimes you gotta go find different people who, who match your energy or match the types of things you're pursuing. And that, that can take a while, right? Like that's not just something that's given. Um, and high school is hard because you're, you're in a set setting that you're kind of stuck in until you've graduated. And if you're not jiving and feel like you fit in the box of what your peers are saying you're supposed to fit in, that can feel really segregating and lonely. But I would say to the high school student, life is so much bigger than school. Life is so much bigger than the education system that you're in. Life is so much bigger than the job you're in. It's so much bigger than your current social setting. And learn to be okay with exploring outside of your box to, to go and find yourself. Mm, that's so good. Everybody needs to go back and rewind that whole thing you just said. That's so good. I want to talk about speaking about others and relationships. One of the quotes that I really loved from your book was this. The true measure of a failed relationship lies not in its end, but in the absence of personal growth and empathy following its conclusion. And this really spoke to me, and I want everybody to go back and listen to that quote again um, and go get the book. But it really spoke to me, and I know it was written on you know the, the romantic relationship chapter, but I think it's like really can apply to any relationship, right? Like whether that's with ourselves or with our friends or our partner or coworkers or our bosses, like how do we apply this concept to our relationships in life? Yeah, well, I think people get really bitter when a relationship doesn't work out the way they wanted it to work out, right? And it, with romantic relationships, it's hard because there's a lot of energy and emotions and hormones playing into the situation. But every relationship that I've been in, whether it be romantic or in a friend group, I see them all as fuel to educate me for future relationships. And so even with my relationship with my business partner, dear God, having a business with another man and growing that into what it is and managing a hundred employees and the amount of conflict we had to go through. It, it's crazy because it's like, I don't see that conflict as failure. I see that as education that I'm going to be able to use for my romantic partner or another friend or another business venture. And I think a lot of times, you know, these relationships we see as failures whenever we give up and we say, well, this was just bad. People like to live in the black and white we don't like to look at the gray. We don't look, like to look at like in between the lines or the nuance of situations of what can I pull that's good from that? I mean, and, that, and that's the whole relationship with failure is learning to live in the gray, learning to look at the nuance of every situation and say like, I'm not a victim to this. So if there were bad things and toxic situations that I can avoid in the future, I'm gonna learn those. But I'm also not gonna be a victim and say this was so bad and this is ruining my life because I'm gonna grow from this and I'm gonna be able to apply it to other relationships. So I think it's really cool because the way I view all romantic relationships I've been in, it's like this is these have all helped me grow in different ways to where I'm going to be even a better partner for the next person I'm with. And viewing it that way has been really cool. And I think it's it's one of those red flags that I look for when I'm dating someone. It's like, how how do you speak about 
your past significant others? How do you speak about other people? Do you speak at them as you're a victim to all, you know, they're narcissistic, they're assholes or this and that and the other, which that might be true in some situations, but the way they speak about them tells me a lot about how they're processing through those relationships and how they're going to process through this one. And so that, that chapter is really important to me because it's like, that's how I live my life. And it's how I, I look to see others live their life as well. And I think that it helps you so much rather than being a victim to, you know, failed relationships, you become a powerful person and get to extract the good from them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we learn the most about ourselves, especially in relationships during those moments of conflict or failure, right? Like that has been the point in our relationship personally and my husband and I that we learned the most was when like I call it our grief case was splattered all over the floor. It was like the tornado was going and it just stopped and there was a it was like disaster zone. And, you know, in that moment, you get to, like, leave the disaster and find a new place to reside and probably repeat the same disaster over here or get to clean it up. And we get to decide. We have a choice, right? But, like, the biggest growth of my life was choosing to clean that up piece by piece. And so, yeah, I just – I think it's – I think it's just so important what you say, right? And, like, now our biggest failure part of our marriage has been the best thing. You know, and so it is. It's so cool. And I wish more people would understand that about relationships or maybe like the lack of that relationship that they have, right? Like I have a lot of friends that are that struggle because they're still single and they don't really want to be single, but we and then they kind of sit in that instead of like like you said, I think this is so important for, you know, anybody that's single that's listening. You said earlier, you said you know, instead of trying that one or two times, like maybe I went on one or two dates this year and they were both total, like they were awful. Instead of just focusing on those and thinking that like, oh, I'm still single because there's nobody out there. Like, why didn't you go on 20 this year? Maybe one of those would have been better. You know? Totally. A hundred percent. So I, I really like that you said that. And I think it's so important for people to understand. So I've just, I've loved this. How do you use this concept of failure to play into the way you run your businesses and your life today? I mean, in a creative company, you have to have a relationship with failure, right? Like you, you can't be creative without failure. And so if you don't allow failure to be present, then you're not going to get anything new or original because you need a hundred bad ideas to flush out before you get the one good idea. And, and so that's definitely something that I love having in my company where we'll be in a brainstorm session and someone says, just a horrible idea. That's really funny. And we can be like, oh, okay, cool. What's the next idea? And we keep moving forward and we can laugh about it. And it creates maybe a safe zone to where people aren't afraid of being shamed for their bad ideas because it's like nobody has only good ideas. Most of our ideas are pretty stupid, but the, you know, or I, maybe stupid is not a good word, but they're, they're not applicable to the situation that you need them for. And, but you need to go through those in order to find the gold nuggets. And so uh, that's something that I, I, you know, am applying into my life. And then also I feel like I have, I have something called a fail journal. It's a journal where I document all of my risks and then write out what I learned from them, what went right, what went wrong. Was it a failure or success? And so I, I that's why I document all of my risk and even doing podcasting. Like this last year, I've guest spoken on so many podcasts and there's still episodes where I get on and I have brain fog and I can't think or articulate an idea and I'm like, uh, and I may be stuttering over my words and, 
and I get done and I'm like, oh my God, I feel so stupid. And I'm like, well, it's like, that's fine. That's expected. If you're going to shoot, you know, 20 shots, you're going to miss a couple. That's okay. Like that's not going to change your life. One bad podcast isn't going to ruin your life. I'm like, what can I do to be better next time? Maybe have some more talking points, maybe write out some thoughts on here. And so uh, that's how I implement it into my life currently right now. So I love that. And you know what? I think being creative, like you're saying, you you and your team get together and you go through these ideas. And that's really cool because I think that actually triggers in other people's brain, right? To keep coming up with more ideas. And I remember when I was younger, I was kind of put down for some ideas or things I had, whether it was in a friend group or at school or what have you. And so my whole life up until a few years ago when I went on this growth journey and did started doing all these other things, I consistently said, oh, I'm just not creative. And I believed it. I was like, no, I'm like more of a math and science girl. Like, you know, I want to know how and why and two plus two always equals four. And like, I'm, I'm not creative. And it, <laughs> And it's like so funny because a few years ago I did this growth journey and then I started doing all these other things and did the podcast and speaking and now I'm doing an eight-week transformational program and people are like helping me with my stuff and they're like, well, it's just because you're a creative. So we got to get these ideas and then we got – and I was like, (laughs) I'm a creative, yeah, you know, and I'm like, I just worked the muscle and now I hear people say that all the time. I probably just Mm -hmm. pay attention to it, right? Like – and, and it's true. It's like when we give ourselves that permission, we exercise that muscle more and more, like we just get more creative. And so like, yeah. I like don't see it as a failure. See mm-hmm. it as something that you want to work that muscle on, right? Isn't it wild? It's so cool. And I like thinking of it that way. I love that you use that analogy because it is, it's like working it out, you know, and there are people who are stronger in creativity because they're playing with words, they're writing books, they're creating videos and they're exercising it. But you go look at, go look at their previous work, maybe the first 10 attempts, it's not going to be anything like it was. And so, yeah, a lot of times we don't think we're creative because once again, we're comparing ourselves to our creative sibling or a creative friend or someone else who people worship as a creative. And so I love that you said that, you know, it is, it is repetition. It's repetition, repetition, practice, practice. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been so fun, Brian. I really have enjoyed this conversation with you. And I feel like I learned so much from your book and just so much about you and the way you navigate life. And I can see why you're so successful. So how can people connect with you from here? Yeah, I mean, um, my company is theadventurechallenge.com. I'm pretty active on Instagram as well. And uh, the book, Hello, My Name is Failure, it's on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible, so they can find it there. And so, um, and then, yeah, I have a podcast called The Brian Ellis Show. It's on Apple, Spotify, and all that as well. So any of those platforms, I'm hanging out there. So Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to put them in the show notes. Well, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're so grateful for your openness and your perspective on Here to Sharing and how we can rewrite that perspective that we have on failure, embrace those failures as stepping stones to success. Um, It's really inspiring and empowering. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Go grab Bryant's book, Hello, My Name is Failure, Embracing Present Failures for Future Success, and check out the Adventure Challenge. I promise you, you will love it. Remember, life's journey is full of lessons, and sometimes our greatest achievements are born from the embrace of failure. Until next time, keep learning, finding the lessons, and keep growing. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Life Without Secrets. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.